Thanks for listening to this Table Church Sermon Podcast. We're in a series right now called God in the Margins. Now, what is a margin? Well, a margin is the space that we don't use. It's not central. It's on the periphery. It's the place that we usually ignore. And yet, when we read the Gospel of Luke, we discover something surprising. Jesus loved the margin. He spent most of his time with people who were forgotten and ignored. So join us in this series as we learn that God doesn't just love the margins. God is in the margins. And of course, be sure to check us out at tablechurchdsm.org and reach out if you need anything at all. Now, please enjoy this week's teaching. Good morning, church. We're going to read the scripture now. And if you do not own a Bible of your own, we'd love to gift one to you. And the ushers in the back have a box of them. Just raise your hand and they'd love to give one to you. Our scripture today is found in the book of Luke, chapter 22, verses 14 through 27. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater? the one who was at the table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Good morning and welcome to Table Church. My name is Phil Wiseman. I'm the lead pastor here, and it's just great to have you here worshiping with us today. So thank you so much for coming. Uh, The passage that Cheryl just read is the foundation of what we refer to as the Lord's Supper. And uh, we know from the very earliest Christian writings that this moment became so important that Christians immediately started to reenact that particular evening, that meal, almost every time that they gathered. It's also known as communion or Eucharist, and we know that as early as the Apostle Paul's writings, it was already commonplace for Christian gatherings to take the Lord's Supper. 
And remember, uh, well, I don't know if you don't remember if you don't know this, but many of Paul's letters were written before the Gospels. Uh, Paul's letters are actually older than the Gospels, which means that even before, perhaps before it was even written in the Gospels, uh, Christians were already taking the Lord's Supper. It was just a, a tradition that was handed on and just kind of stuck. And so this is a big deal. In fact, hundreds of years before many of our core doctrines were established, for example, the Trinity or the Incarnation, before Christians were using those words, they were taking the Lord's Supper. Apparently, this matters. Apparently, this is a big deal. You know it's a big deal because all four Gospels, plus one of Paul's letters, include the Lord's Supper. Look, the Gospels, the four uh, books in the Bible that record Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they don't all record the same things. They don't all include the same stuff. So, some of them might include things that others don't. And yet, the Lord's Supper is in all four of them. So that gives it more airtime than other popular Jesus moments, like, like the story of the prodigal son, that's just in Luke. Or the Sermon on the Mount, well, that's just in Matthew. Although Luke has kind of a parallel, Sermon on the Plain, uh, the, the parable of uh, the Good Samaritan, that's only in Luke. These are like classic Jesus moments, and they're not in all four Gospels. Even the story of Jesus' birth isn't in all four Gospels. But the Lord's Supper is. And so apparently, the Gospel writers, as they were putting this stuff together, they all said to themselves, they said, you know, that meal that Jesus ate the night before he died, I definitely have to include that. It was a non-negotiable for them. Apparently, this moment is a big deal. It's in there in all four Gospels right along with the crucifixion and the resurrection. Which raises the question, why? Why is that passage we just heard so important to Christians? that all four of the gospel writers, the earliest Christian writings, many of the earliest documents we've discovered from the church were detailed instructions on how to take communion. Why is it so important? In fact, they were so adamant about it that the, uh, one of the earliest criticisms of Christians in the Roman Empire was that they were cannibals because they were going on about eating the body and blood of their master. And so it was a big enough thing among them that their critics caught wind of it and were able to understand it enough to distort it like that. There's a lot of reasons probably why it's so important, this meal. But I want to boil it down this way today. And it's this. God uniquely dwells in the Lord's Supper. God uniquely dwells in the Lord's Supper. Christians have believed that when we gather together and we reenact this meal, uh, that, that God appears there somehow. That God is somehow in that in a, in a unique sort of way. We, of course, believe God is everywhere. We've said this before. God is everywhere. The, the, the theological word for that is that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at once. And yet, God is not everywhere in the same way. And, and God is in communion in a special way. And so how is God present in communion? Well, once again, we could fill libraries with this, and many have, but the last sentence of our passage gives us a clue as to one way that God is present in this meal. He says, Jesus says, I am among you as one who serves. I'm among you as one 
who serves. See, when we come to the Lord's table, we are not only reminded but we, uh, but of, of what Jesus did, but we also experience a God who has come to serve. He shed his very blood and he broke his body for our freedom. So when we experience God in communion, one way that we experience him as, is as a God who serves. And I think that that is absolutely crucial for our discipleship. We're going to unpack that a little bit today. But look at, for a moment at how his disciples responded after this. How horribly they missed the point. Jesus had just finished giving them the meal. This is my body. This is my blood poured out for you. Seconds after this, Jesus says, uh, seconds after Jesus says this, the disciples, what are they doing? They're arguing about which one of them is the greatest. But which one of them is greatest? I, I just want to know how that particular argument sounded like. Well, no, I've cast out the most demons. I mean, like, how, what were they... How, what was their measurement for who is the greatest in the kingdom? And so they're having this argument, and they don't just miss the point. They go the complete opposite direction from what Jesus is trying to accomplish that night. In fact, if it wasn't so serious, I would think that Luke is putting this in there to be funny, that it's supposed to be like a comedic moment at just how drastically and how horribly they miss what Jesus is trying to accomplish. But I don't think he's being funny. I think it's just that bad. John's account of the Last Supper tells us that before Jesus served them the meal, he got down and he took a towel and he washes their feet. Now, this is a job that was reserved for the lowest of the slaves. And yet Jesus, the master, the Lord of the universe, the one through whom all that exists came into being, gets down on his knees and washes their feet. And, and no sooner had he done this than the disciples start to argue about which one of them is the best. Margaret Heffernan did a TED talk on this phenomenon called willful blindness. Willful blindness. This is where there is information you could know and should know but you somehow manage not to know. In other words, you don't know it because you just don't want to know it. She tells a story of a town called Libby, Montana. And Libby was home to a vermiculite mine. Vermiculite uh, was a mineral that was used um, in all so sorts of different applications. And in that particular town, in Libby, it was used everywhere. It was in their insulation, in their playgrounds, in their skating rinks, in their football fields. And there's a woman in Libby, her name was Gayla Benefield, and Gayla's job was to go from home to home during the day, and she would read the utility meters. And as she did this, and she went from home to home throughout the day, she noticed something interesting about her town. She noticed there was a very high number of middle-aged men who were at home during the day on an oxygen tank. She thought, what's going on here? And so she decided to do some digging, and, and she did a little research, and what she found was that Libby's vermiculite contained a very toxic form of asbestos. And it was literally killing the town. But the problem is that this vermiculite mine employed hundreds of people and it was the source of the town's prosperity. And so when she started to sound the alarm, nobody wanted to hear it. Nobody wanted to hear it. In fact, she became so annoying that people in the town who opposed her got together and, and printed a bumper sticker that says, yes, I'm from Libby, Montana. No, I don't have asbestosis. That's what their bumper sticker said. They're just in complete denial that this thing that lined their children's playgrounds was a deadly toxin. In fact, 
A federal agency came and screened the town, and they found that they had a mortality rate 80 times higher than the national average. But even then, many of them refused to accept the truth. When they finally set up a clinic to help treat everyone with, with the illness, the, some people, they would sneak in the back door in order to get treatment because they didn't want to be seen. Today, Libby is considered one of the worst man-made environmental disasters and victims actually continue to surface. So what's going on here? Well, this is willful blindness. This is information that we should know and could know, but somehow managed not to know it. The disciples had been with Jesus for three years. They had seen him welcome children, tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes. They had seen him touch lepers and heal them. They had seen him do it on the Sabbath. They had seen him give dignity to people that had none. They had heard his teachings about how the last shall be first and the sheep and the goats. They had heard all these things and seen all these things and done all these things, and yet they still, they still managed not to get the point. They'd heard his teaching about taking up a cross, and yet they still managed not to get it. No sooner had Jesus finished serving them the meal when they were already bickering about which one of us is better. I wonder sometimes, how did Jesus feel in this moment? He must have been like, I must be the worst teacher ever. Like, we have been walking together for three years, and this is where we're at. I must be the worst teacher ever. I'm literally going to die tomorrow, <laughs> and here's where we are, you know? And so what does Jesus do? Well, he patiently reiterates the same message he'd been trying to tell them all along. He says, the ki Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. She says, hey, who, who, who is the greatest? Well, it's the one at the table, right? It's the one who has the prominent seat. But look at me. I just wash your feet. I'm among you as one who serves. And this is what we learn in communion. Now, I want you to know that at some point, things did click for those disciples. Every single one of them would give their lives or their freedom for the gospel. Somewhere they got it. But here's what I think that we, we often can't accept. This is where we often become willfully blind. When it comes to Jesus' teachings, it's amazing how easily and how, I don't know, ingeniously we work around this. And it's this, it's that God doesn't just love those in the margins. God is in the margins. He says, I am among you as one who serves. And think about the difference that that makes for a moment. I can say I love somebody, but still stay nice and cozy where I am. But that's not what God does. He doesn't just say I love you and good luck. God comes into that space. He comes into the margins. Now, what are the margins? The margins are the place that are unused, unnecessary, on the periphery. The part that no one sees is useful. That's the margins. It's the place that the rest of culture has forgotten about, and yet that is where God dwells. And it's quite possible that, you know, some of us here have been there or are there. 
Uh, and the trouble with preaching a sermon is that you have to generalize a little bit. I can't possibly preach a sermon that's tailored to every single person's situation in the room. And so you have to make a few generalizations. And so one of those generalizations I'm going to make is, is, is that most of us here today, I'm going to speak for everybody, most of us here today, though, are not in the margins. That doesn't mean that we don't have hardships. That doesn't mean that we don't experience the loss of loved ones, illnesses, tragedies, you know, a car gets wrecked or a furnace goes out. It doesn't mean that those things don't happen and it doesn't mean that those things don't matter. We have challenges in life. However, for the most part, we do not live each day striving to be afforded the basic human dignity that is automatically assumed to others. And that's what it means to live in the margins. It is to not be afforded the dignity that is simply assumed to people that look and act the way that culture expects. And that is what Jesus did so well. He gave dignity to those who were undignified in the eyes of the world. And that, that creates... Um, that creates maybe an inconvenient truth for some of us. It's that, you know, if God is in the margins, then if I want to fully experience God, I must go there too. And that means that something is required of me. It means that, that following Jesus requires a drastic change for me, perhaps. And this is where we often get willful blindness. We have ingenious ways of dodging these teachings, just like the disciples did. Reese Howells was a man of prayer in the early 1900s, and as God was teaching him about prayer, he learned there to be a difference between just praying for somebody and interceding for somebody. You can pray for somebody. You should pray for people. We, you know, but you can pray for somebody from wherever you're at. But he would say, interceding, becoming an intercessor requires identifying with the person that you are interceding for. Intercession requires identification, he would say. And, and what he means is that in order, to, in order to intercede for someone, you must experience what they're going through. You must be able to identify with their pain. For example, the disease that was ravaging his country of Wales at the time was tuberculosis. And when somebody got tuberculosis, I mean, it was terrifying. And so they would be kind of sectioned off into a room by themselves all alone. And, and, you know, they're basically there to die and to suffer by themselves. But Mr. Howells knew that to intercede for these people, he must also be with them and experience a little bit of the loneliness and pain that they're going through even if it meant putting his own life in, at risk. In the same way, when interceding for the poor, God would draw him to live like the poor. And, and he would do this, and people would think he's crazy. And what he would say is, you know, what is the hardest part about this? It's not going hungry. It's not you know, going without the comforts that I am so used to. The hardest thing about doing this is the loss of dignity. It's the opinions of other people, the people who think I've gone mad and who just have written me off as some crazy guy, the polite society, all of whom would consider themselves followers of Jesus, looking at me like I'm completely insane. It's the loss of dignity that was the hardest for him. 
But once he surrendered this to God, he receives a victory over this kind of idol in his life, and God uses him to do incredible things. God uses him to intercede for those who are hurting and to work miracles in their lives. But the fact that intercession requires identification is most clearly seen in Jesus himself. Jesus was numbered among the transgressors, it says. He bore our sins. He entered into our condition, and he tasted death for every person. As a result, Jesus is our intercessor, according to Romans 8. And so if God calls you into the margins, if he says, I want you to be an intercessor, I want you not just to pray for this community or for the people in it. I want you to identify with what some of them are going through. And then I will be able to use you to work wonders. Would you be willing to do it? Because it seems to me that if God is in the margins, then we must go there too. It's not enough to preach it. It's not enough to post about it, you know. It's not enough to put out a yard sign. Like, we must go there too. My prayer is that one day I wouldn't be able to preach a sermon like this. And what I mean is that this sermon is a little bit about how we must go to them. You see that? Howard Thurman writes, there is a certain grandeur and nobility in administering to another's need out of one's fullness and plenty. And so my prayer is that over time, the lives in our church would become so enmeshed with our community that there is no us in them, there's just us. But listen, you've not identified with something until it is an inescapable part of your life, you know? It's, it's, it's the point where there's no off switch. And I worry that too many people make it instead a highly optional part of their life. But if there's anything that should distinguish Christians, it's this constant push, this constant tendency to move into places that are hurting and broken and dark. In our passage, Jesus describes the way the world views power. He says that, you know, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. A benefactor was a, a title. It was a title of honor that was given to people like princes and emperors and even the Roman gods. And the, re the way you would get this title is by being extremely generous. So suppose that I had a lot of money and I was powerful. I would maybe f pay for a road to be put in the city and I'd be a benefactor. What Jesus is saying is that the world wants their power and their generosity and their good deeds. They want them to be recognized. They want status and honor and fame. They want a dignity for it. But then Jesus gets about as blunt as he can possibly get. He says in the very next verse, but you are not to be like that. You can't get much clearer. He's saying this is the way the world does leadership and power. You're not supposed to be like that. You're supposed to be the opposite of that. And, you know, Jesus' teachings in a lot of ways are pretty simple and straightforward. It's just really, really hard to live out. It's easy to understand what he's saying. Doing it is the hard part. And so I don't want to make it seem that, you know, my life exemplifies this sermon. Sometimes you preach a sermon and you're like, you know, actually, I, I do live that fairly well. Other times you preach a sermon and you're like, nope, I've got a long ways to go. This is one of those kind of days for me. But I do want you to know, like, we're trying. Like, this church, we have taken in the last few years, I think, some significant steps towards identifying in order to be transformed, in order to love genuinely people in our community. 
This is why we're, for example, opening Immigrant Connection, because nothing is more undignifying than having to flee your own home, only to be handed the most complex set of rules, simply to not get deported. And so we want to help people in these positions. And part of what I think will happen is that our church will start to identify with the struggles that people go through that maybe we right now just have no idea because they're not afforded basic dignity sometimes. So the, when you go to seminary, they, um, and you take a preaching class, what they do is they say, okay, every sermon, you need to have some sort of a practical application, you know, some sort of a next step. Here's what you should do. Like, you've just heard the word, now here's what you should do. I'm going to break that rule today. I don't know what to tell you to do. I, I think that, you know, if, if this is, if I've done my job here today, then maybe you're, you're kind of like, well, man, how do I, where do we even go? What's, I, I don't even know where to start. And the fact is that I think that that tension might be healthy. To say, my life doesn't yet look like this, but God, I repent. Would you show me where to start? And it might look different for many of us. I mean, as a body, as a family, we are doing things, and I could share those with you, but maybe for you personally, that's just a journey you need to go on with the Lord and start to ask him, God, what does it look like for me to be somebody who identifies with so that I can intercede for those who are hurting the most? And so I want to invite you kind of into that tension like, lean into it. That's great. Whenever we start to feel this, like, oh, I don't know what to do. I feel like God's pushing something on me, but I'm not sure where to go. Like, that's a, that's a beautiful thing. That's the Holy Spirit starting to work in our hearts. And then it pushes us into prayer. And we say, God, what should I do? And, and eventually the, the tension, the pressure gets so big, we're just like, God, I'll do anything. You know, just tell me what I should do. And then he reveals it to us. What it is we're supposed to lay down? What it is we're supposed to move into? And that's how we grow. And so as you come to the communion table today, yes, we're going to take communion today. As you come, remember that Jesus comes to us as one in the margins, as one who serves. And as we take the sacrament, we are eating his body and his blood that was broken and poured out for us. And as you do that, you can hopefully be filled by the power of God that will enable you to see and to do the things that he is calling you to do. Remember, God is uniquely present in this moment. And so what is it that perhaps you need to lay down today? Is it power? Is it dignity? Is it prestige? I don't know what it is. Is it pride? Surrender it to God and come to the table in a manner worthy of the table today. Let's pray. Well, God, it is a wonderful thing to realize that you, you came. If, if you were in Des Moines today, Lord, you would probably be among the most hurting in our city. It's wonderful to, to know that. But then we remember, oh, but that must be what I should do. <laughs> and um, that's hard. And so, God, would you, first of all, like we sang, light a fire. Lord, so that our hearts break to see your gospel spread in our city, to see lives restored, to see people come to know you, to see dignity restored to people who are your image bearers, Lord. And help us to be your hands and feet in, in restoring it. 
And so, Lord, I pray that today as we take communion, you would meet us right here. And Holy Spirit, you would start to do a work. Something would happen in this room. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.